the, the, the topic which I'm going to be speaking about today, um, or the topics, science and Buddhism, are in themselves huge and massive. So the reason why I put a timer on, on myself is because I could, I could probably spend about six, at least six weeks on each of them. Uh, but what I, I, in, in this talk, I'm going to try and condense down what I think, for me, are, the, uh, are some essential, um, essential perspectives from science and Buddhism on reality, which are pertinent to our lives here and now, right now. So, as Surika mentioned, I have two great passions in my life. Uh, Buddhism, and pra the practice of Buddhism, and science. So, I, I, I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to speak about both today. Both, my interest in both science and Buddhism, uh, have, have been driven by an intense curiosity to understand the universe in which I live. I find the universe in which I live really, really interesting and fascinating. As a young child, I was deeply fascinated with what was around me. I remember at the age of, around, I think I was about six or seven, um, standing in, in, in the garden early one morning, um, looking at the dewdrops on the blade of grass and becoming utterly absorbed in the wonder of what I was looking at. And questions started to arise in my mind. Why was the drop shaped like it was? Why did it not fall off the, the, the blade of grass? Why did it stay where it was? Why was grass green? How does grass grow? How do flowers, how are flowers produced from this, from, 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 by plants? What was water? Where did it come from? And how did the colours of the rainbow suddenly and magically appear once sunlight struck this, this beautiful spherical ball of water? It was if by magic. And then I remember I, I turned and I looked up at the sky. The, um, it was a blue sky. And why was it blue? What was sky? And it was there, but yet I, I, I reached out to grasp it and I drew my hand back, and my, my hand was empty. So what was sky? You know, it was, some, it was there, but I couldn't actually uh, take hold of it and grasp it and, and, and have this uh, handful of sky in my hand. So I pursued this deep curiosity, which began at an early age, with the wonder of the world around me. And I did a degree in biology, and then I did a PhD in molecular genetics and biochemistry, and, as Sirica said, followed by several years uh, in research science, which I loved. I really, really loved um, the, the world of research science. It, it was such a stimulating, um, high-energy, uh, inquiring environment to be in, and I was very privileged um, to be in it for so many years. However, despite all that, that wonder which, uh, which I saw, when I was 14, I had an experience which turned the curiosity I had for the external world into an, to, to an unexpected direction, which eventually led me to Buddhism. It was a summer, and, and I'd been helping my dad, some of you will know this story, um, deliver coal on his rounds in, in Birmingham. And many of his, his customers were elderly. Um, you know, coal was dying out, and, and coal was, we were delivering coal to traditional houses in the, in the black country. 
Many of his, as I say, many of his customers are elderly, but they were also quite sad. So we had these long conversations. In the black country, um, it's very traditional to make homemade lemonade, and it's gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. It's worth living in the black country for, for the lemonade which they make. And we had these chats, and yeah, I was just really struck. A lot of people were sad. They had lost spouses. Uh, maybe their children didn't come to see them as much as they wanted. And all of this struck me extremely deeply, quite profoundly. What is the point of life, I asked myself, after all this toil, uh, working in factories or where they'd, they'd worked in the black country, and you reach at this age and then you're still unhappy? What is the point? What is going on? And I actually fell into a deep depression. I had no answers. I had no answers. Um, and whilst on holiday, I remember on, on a family holiday in Devon, it intensified to such an extent, this depression, that eventually one day at the beach, I took the rubber dinghy, which I persuaded my dad to, to buy us, and I just rode like mad, 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 until the people on the beach were like little ants. I'd gone out a long, long way. It was quite dangerous, but a, it wasn't a particularly uh, robust dinghy. And then I sat back and I waited. I just sat back. And suddenly I had an experience in which my whole being seemed to mingle with the universe. I saw the universe um, in this mingling as nothing but things which arise uh, and, and, and fall. In depends upon condition. There was nothing solid in the universe. And I mingled with this, you know, it's my, it's quite a uh, very, very moving experience. And I was blissfully happy. So I, I'd suddenly gone from this intense depression to an intense bliss. Just like that. And spontaneously. And I see, my conscience seemed to be totally, absolutely liberated from, from all constrictions. It just seemed to go, be able to go where it wanted within this, this vast universe. I'm not sure how long the experience lasted, but from that moment I knew that there was a reality beyond um, the sciences, beyond conventional reality, um, which was really, really interesting and intriguing. It was beyond the rational and beyond anything that I'd experienced um, at, at that point. And I knew that it was accessible to me and to all. So I began... Um, uh, searching spiritual traditions and I, I looked into to a few because that's where I thought the answer or that's where I thought I might find an explanation of this experience or at least follow it up and eventually I found Buddhism and it actually was the only thing which, which could address this, this particular experience it helped me make sense of it and I must say I came across Buddhism uh, by chance and also, I was very, very reluctant to walk into a Buddhist centre. So, I don't know, what, thank you very much to all of those of you who have walked into a Buddhist centre at all. I, I had very negative associations with, with Buddhism for some reason. The only reason why I went along to a Buddhist centre was to, to support a friend uh, who I was doing a, the PhD with. And um, he wanted to, he wouldn't go along on his own. So I said, all right, then, I'll come along with you. Um, so, yeah, I had a bit of a rocky relationship with Buddhism for many years. It was very much off and on. But um, increasingly, I was drawn to the beauty and the potential the Buddhist vision offers to human life. Um, 
And eventually, uh, after years of training, I was ordained into the Tri Ratna Buddhist order and given the name Mahashraddha, which incidentally means great faith. You might be wondering what faith has got to do with um, a system which has no God, but maybe we can go on, to, we can discuss that at the end. It's very interesting. So, yes, I was very, very happy indeed to be giving this, this, this talk. And I hope that you will leave this talk thinking about reality yourselves, thinking about your, your own reality, or realities, I should say. So the big question I really want to uh, look at this afternoon is that of reality and our relationship to it. I believe that this issue is fu fundamental, of fundamental importance to every single one of us, not as individuals as we strive to lead uh, more fulfilling lives, but also for mankind as a whole. Our relationship to reality is that crucial. The Oxford Dictionary defines reality as the state of things as they actually exist, rather than as they may appear or may be thought to be. If we are relating to a reality that we perceive to be real, but actually is not real, then that can have catastrophic consequences, not just for ourselves, but for other people. So this issue of reality is really important for all of us to ponder and consider. Now, both science and Buddhism are profoundly concerned with the reality. What is it and how it works? And it, uh, in, in the talk today, um, this afternoon, I'll be looking at um, reality from both the scientific perspective and, and the Buddhist perspective. And consider the implications for our lives right here, right now. But first I want to point out a fundamental distinction between the scientific and Buddhist pursuit of reality. Although science and Buddhism peacefully coexist and even sometimes illuminate, illuminate each other, the Dalai Lama seems to have seen the possibility of such illumination in his encouragement of dialogue between the neurosciences and, and Buddhism. For the most part, the, dis the disciplines of science and Buddhism work on entirely different planes that touch each other only lightly. I think that's really important to, to realise, and I'll come on to what that means a little later. Now, unquestionably, there are parallels between what science, mainly maths, uh, psychology, biology and physics, and Buddhism have understood about reality, the universe and the human condition. But there are also extremely important differences. They, are very diff they have very, very different approaches. And they approach reality for different reasons. Buddhism is not about how and how understanding how the, the world works, as for example physics might approach it. Or how to make te technology from basic facts or discovery, of which of course mankind has benefited enormously from the technology which has arisen from pure science. What Buddhism is predominantly concerned with is how the human mind, something so intangible and ineffable in essence, perceives and relates to everyday uh, phenomena. In fact, Buddhism is concerned with wisdom derived directly from experience and not through measuring. measuring. The sciences measure things. Buddhism uh, obtains its, uh, its perspective on reality from direct experience. 
This wisdom, the Buddhist wisdom, is not to be confused with the intellectual understanding of facts, nor about measuring things and discovering why something happens, e.g. like empirical observations about biological systems. Nor is it to be confused with accumulating a wealth of ideas, theories and understandings as science does. A scientist may be extremely knowledgeable, but it doesn't necessarily make that person wise. And I've had plenty of encounters with super intelligent scientists who emotionally um, need, a bit of, uh, need a bit of work, should we say. <laughs> At least we're wise from the Buddhist perspective, I mean. The, wi- the wisdom derived from Buddhism is centred on understanding the mind and all the delusions that the mind presents to us so that we may grasp the real nature of reality and posit a happy repose from which to free ourselves from the existential sufferings that we naturally propagate for ourselves. And that was my fundamental problem when I was 14. And in doing so, we can then help develop a true compassion understanding about human existential suffering, which we all experience, whether potentially or actual, so that we might help others to attain this state of liberation too. So Buddhism and science are approaching reality for, for different reasons. Buddhist, Buddhist, Buddhist reality is helping us to address um, this feeling um, which we can sometimes experience of deep unsatisfaction with, with, with what conventional life um, is on offer. So my experience when, when I was helping my dad deliver a coal was a, a fundamental response to this is not enough for me, that I need something else uh, in my life. And Buddhism for me uh, addresses that um, problem. But one expected, unexpected but shared experience that I found has arisen through through my practising science and Buddhism, is this. Through exploration, we discover knowledge and answers, but those answers lead to even more questions as we uncover more mysteries. Science is, is, just keeps rolling forward, and so does um, Buddhist practice. Far from being a discouraging thing, this for me is a source of inspiration and wonder. The sciences, for example, show us that no matter how much we learn about nature, there are many, many more discoveries and mysteries to be solved. And this is wonderful, isn't it? I mean, fancy, imagine living in a universe where after five years you know everything about it. Imagine you know, your own minds if after five years you knew everything about it. And then what do you do? What do you do then? But uh, you know, my experience of Buddhist practice, is, is, it's wonderful because I, I see it as a, a lifelong unfolding of understanding. And I think that's a really wonderful thing to have in your life. It's not, it's not um, something static, it's something very dynamic, probably for the rest of my life. So before looking at realities of science and Buddhism, I just want to look at something very important. I want to look at our, um, the area of views. Now, what I mean by this is we all have our unique realities. My reality is probably different from yours. What I think is true is probably different to you. How, uh, fundamentally, how I think I can find happiness might be very different to you. For example, uh, what one view which I've had to work with in my life is that I can find complete happiness through material uh, possessions, through money, through... 
um, security, uh, in status, in you know, in work, and so on. And that, although deeply, I believe that from an early age, fundamentally, it's caused a lot of um, uh, suffering in my life. So we all have our unique realities built upon um, our own system of views. And these views can, can, can range from the most casual opinions about everyday matters to, f- to, to theories about ultimate metaphysical issues, one of which is scientific materialism, which I'll come on to a little later. The, our views are not disinterested, but arise out of the fundamental struggle we all have or tried or, in, or we're engaged in to avoid what we dislike. That includes people, it includes experiences and to gain and perpetuate what we like and what we value. That is the fundamental um, battle we're, we're, we're involved in. And at bottom, everybody's system of values is founded upon some view about the purpose of life. However vague, inarticulate or inconsistent, it, you will have some views about life, about the purpose and meaning of your life. But the views are so important because they govern the direction of our lives and often they are unconscious, as I have found out, um, to my cost. They affect our behaviour and different views of reality leads to different behaviours. We, d- we just have to look at the news and we know we can see how different behaviours are arising out of different reali- pe- people's realities. Views then, including our views on reality have far-reaching consequences on our experience of life and the very direction of our lives. I think it's therefore vital that we understand what they are and how they drive our lives. Do they actually work? And do they actually lead to greater happiness, greater freedom, and so on, or not? Now, to illustrate this point, I just want to look at um, scientific materialism. Now, there are many species of materialism, but I'm just going to look at scientific Materialism, because it's, actually it's, re- it's relevant to this talk. This view is, the, is a view that sees the world entirely explicable through matter. Everything can be reduced and explained by matter alone. The only reality is matter, is, mater- is to be found in the material world. The universe, from this perspective, is viewed as a huge mechanical device Uh, functioning on the basis of complex laws. Consciousness is purely a product of brain function. We are nothing but molecular interactions and neuronal firings. This kind of materialism personally leaves me quite cold. I think it's very dangerous. I've encountered it a lot in, 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 in my career as a scientist. Reducing profound human experiences such as love, awe, reverence, gratitude, friendship, grief and so on to mere molecular and neuronal activity is, in my view, a severely limiting way to view and therefore experience the world. It will almost certainly inhibit any efforts to explore realities beyond the material and that includes spiritual realities. If we want to step into a deeper truth, it's a limiting view. And I have seen uh, how dangerous this view and how it can affect uh, the lives of, the, of many scientists, actually, who I've, who I've met. Roger Penrose of Oxford said, is, is a, a neuroscientist, says, Conscious 
actions and conscious perceptions, and in particular the conscious phenomenon of understanding, will find no proper explanation within the present-day picture of the material universe. And the, 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 the ineffable nature of consciousness is, I think many neuroscientists are now positing that it will not be understood by uh, science alone. It's just it's ineffable. Which is quite a significant shift, I can tell you, in the, in the scientific world. So contrast this rather, to me, it might not be to you, to a cold view of scientific materialism with that of William Blake. The world, to Blake, the world was much, much more than material existence. In a mundane object, he saw the hand of eternity. In the complexity of the modern world, he saw the underlying innocence and purity of life. And you probably know this verse. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So I now want to turn my attention to looking at reality from the perspective of science. And as I said at the beginning, this is truly a vast Area And I could pick one of many, many um, subjects from, from many of the scientific disciplines, including maths, psychology, physics and the biological sciences. But I'm just going to dip into two, Physic, a bit of physics and, and, and more so biology, because that's my area, specialisation. So we think we're pretty solid, don't we? Well, I do. So if I go like that, my hand doesn't go through my chest. It stops. Yeah, so I think I'm pretty solid. I think I'm pretty substantial. I don't think um, I'm going to die. I think I'm. Uh, I don't on a deep level. I've, I don't think so. I think maybe we think also we think that we're pretty important. We're number one actually. The universe is us. Isolated from all others, we are an isolated us, uh, isolated universe. My universe is me, and Petra Priya's universe is him, is his. And occasionally we collapse, or occasionally collapse into a ball of self-pity, where the only experience that we can relate to is our own. Our pain is the universe. That's all that exists. But the sciences are showing that our perceptions of the universe are very superficial indeed and challenges the many assumptions that we hold to be true. We are not as substantial, even from a scientific perspective, as what we think we are. The universe is mysterious, we're finding, that we are mysterious as human beings. Consciousness is mysterious, it's ineffable. And we really don't know what's going on. We know a bit about what's going on, but... um, some cell biologists uh, estimate that we know about 0.5% of what's going on inside a cell, which I'll show you later. And e- even in the material world, take, for example, dark matter, nobody knows what it is, and yet it makes up most of the matter of this universe. 80% uh, is, has been estimated. What is it? We don't know. Because you can't see it, because it's dark. It's So, and of the 20% of the matter which we can observe, we don't even understand that. And let's place our lives 
in a cosmic perspective as well. We live on quite a small planet, relatively speaking. Um, around, and, and our planet revolves around a medium-sized star, relatively speaking. On the outer arms of a spiral galaxy, that's also revolving. So the, the, the universe is, is fundamentally dynamic. And this galaxy, the Milky Way, has approximately 200 to 400 billion stars in it. The Milky Way itself is just part of a cluster of galaxies. Um, and in the, in the, it's been estimated that there's a, a further 100 billion galaxies within the Milky Way. I mean, these kind of statistics are abs absolutely unimaginable. The one which really gets me is that um, it's thought that the, the, big, the Big Bang originated from uh, uh, matter which was condensed into a ball uh, smaller than a full stop on a page. So somehow that 100 billion times 400 billion uh, planets emerge from this, this Big Bang. Because, and we, we can't understand it because it's completely beyond um, uh, our understanding. Scientists put the universe at an age of 13.7 billion years, and how they've done that is absolutely amazing, uh, really. Um, we don't know how it began, as I say, but we do know something of what happened a, a fraction of a second after the, the Big Bang. But 13.7 billion years is rather hard to comprehend, I think you'll, you'll agree. But we've got some help here from Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan did something very interesting indeed. Uh, at the time um, he was working, the, the universe was thought to be 15 billion years old. Hey, what's two, you know... <laughs> what's 2.3 billion years, eh? Well, when, but when, and what Carl Sagan did is he's, he condensed or compressed the 15 billion years which, of the universe and the Big Bang to, to his time um, into one year. He, can, he compressed 15 billion years into one cosmic year. And I quote, this is Carl Sagan now, if the universe began on January the 1st, it was not until May that the Milky Way formed. Other planetary systems may have appeared in June, July and August, but our Sun and Earth not until mid-September. Life arose soon after. We humans appeared so recently that our recorded history occupies only the last few seconds of the last minute of December the 31st. And yet we think we're so significant. We on the Earth have just awakened to the great oceans of space and time from which we emerged. This is still Carl Sagan. We are the legacy of 15 billion years of cosmic evolution. We have a choice. We can enhance life and come to know the universe that made us, or we can squander our 15 billion year heritage in meaningless self-destruction. What happens in the first second on the next cosmic year depends on what we do here and now with our intelligence and knowledge of the universe. So set within this kind of perspective, my self-importance kind of dwindles a bit. But however, we are not at all insignificant. We are not. Even within this kind of perspective, we have the capacity for self-consciousness and intelligence, two things which are wonders in themselves. They're wonders of the universe. We have the opportunity 
to do something meaningful with that experience, or we can squander it. Our intelligent self-consciousness allows us to ask really important questions about what's going on around us, and who are we? What's the, what's the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? So let's use it and not squander 15 billion years of, uh, of evolutionary heritage. As Brian Cox said in his recent uh, series, which I thought was wonderful, we, we are the universe made conscious. So let's make use of uh, the consciousness which we have. Our understanding of the universe through the physical sciences also reveals a profound reality of our relationship to it. We tend, or I don't know about you, but I tend to think of myself as a pretty isolated, independent entity. That's my fundamental, unthought-out default position. Well, I am not. Regardless of what Buddhism has to say, which has a lot to say, from the physical sciences point of view, I am not an independent, isolated entity. I, like you, are intricately bound to one another, to all life on this planet and to the universe. The very molecular building blocks of our bodies, such as carbon, and the other heavy metals, which are essential for the biochemistry of of every single cell in your body, and we think there's 100 trillion, were forged in the furnaces at unimaginable temperatures and pressures of dying stars billions of years ago, which were released into the universe when when that dying star finally exploded. These elements later coalesced to form, uh, to, to form new planets, including Earth. And then, and then the, these, the carbon and other heavy metals were recruited into the evolution of life. Our bodies, therefore, are made up of elements and molecules which are, you can view as being borrowed from the universe. They're not ours. They're not. Well, I don't think they are. Which, when I, when I snuff it, those, the, 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 all the carbon and the zinc and the copper and so on will go back to the universe to be used by it for something else, if you like. So I am, fa- in fact, not an independent, isolated entity. I'm intricately bound up with the universe. And after death, I'll be intricately bound up with the universe. Something much, 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 much bigger than me. So this vast vision of, of, uh, of the cosmos, of the universe in which we live, this ceaseless and relentless dynamism of the, of the universe in which we live, which, which is going on right now, even within our own bodies, is to me something very beautiful and very inspiring. And one which has profound implications if you really think about it. And it's a vision that is fundamental to Buddhism, as you shall see later. This vision of being bound up with others in, in, in a really quite intimate way, far from being an abstract scientific truth, gives rise to the Buddhist teaching on compassion for all beings. If we are all intricately bound up with the universe in the same way, then, quite naturally, surely, if we really see that truth, we will be concerned with the welfare of all beings, because their story is our story, our story is their story. So science, at least for me, uncovers a universe of staggering complexity and amazing beauty, but it also opens up my mind to wonder. And my ability to experience wonder and awe are an essential part of my 
me being a human being. Wonder is absolutely essential. Long before psychology was recognised as a discipline, uh, Descartes, in his Passions of the Soul, placed wonder as the first of all passions, before desire, before hate, before love, before sadness, before joy. He saw wonder as primary to other emotions because it is a surprise of the mind that occurs prior to comparison and judgment of the experience. You look at a beautiful sunset and the wonder can just arise quite spontaneously without having to think about it. And that's why Descartes valued wonder so much. It's a very spontaneous response to the world around us and within us. So wonder is an immediate, direct experience of awe. It is one that transcends the rather narrow and limited experience of, of myself. The perceiver of wonder stands eclipsed in the immensity of the awesome before them, engulfed yet somehow sustained in it. The 20th century theologian, Abraham Heschel, said, Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. The beginning of our happiness lies in the understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. And wonder and awe, for me, is the foundation stone for powerful uh, spiritual experience too. Because both transcend the self. They, they transcend self-interest. It goes, one, the experience of wonder goes far, far beyond the everyday rational experience. And of course, closely related to wonder is the experience of reverence. In the presence of something that is so awe-inspiring, we can, I can certainly feel a kind of a reverence, a humility um, in, in relation to what's before me. And humility is an extremely important experience on any kind of spiritual path. It's like the self just steps aside and we can just um, allow other parts of our being to come into existence. So let's see if we can get the wonder juices flowing, shall we? Um, I, I just want us to look at a, a real marvel of evolution, um, the biological the cell, basically. The, the cell is a fundamental building block, as you know, uh, of all life. We have about 100 trillion in our body. And we don't just have one cell. We have many, many different cell types which have arisen from a single cell, very often a stem cell, which then differentiates into a liver cell or an eye cell, or blah, blah, blah. We've got hundreds of these different types of cell. It, it, life, we think, appeared on, on Earth about 3.8 billion years ago, which was approximately 750 million years after the Earth was formed. So the Earth was barren of life for a long, long time. By life, I mean the, first, the appearance of the first cell. And the kinds of cells that found, are found in our body are, are much more complicated than bacterial cells, and they seem to have appeared about 2.7 billion years ago. And this is an example of a, a typical cell um, in our body. I'm not going to go through all of the details. I just want you to... I'll put it up there just for you to look at. as It's a schematic, but, I mean, it's an absolute marvel of evolution. You'll see that inside the cell there are all these different... Um, uh, organelles, you've got the nucleus, you've got Golgi complexes, you've got mitochondria, you've got 
um, Golgi apparatus and so on. The, the, the cell is an incredibly uh, complex um, biological system. So, what I want to do now, what I'm going to show you now is, 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 is an, not yet, Andrew, show you. Well, we're going to show you an animation which was um, put together at Harvard University, which it, 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 it's, it's built upon what we know of the biological and physical sciences of a cell. The cells, they're, as I say, they're hugely complex. They're bursting with activity. They're a bustling city. They're a, they're a mini Manchester in, 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 all, in, in your bodies. They, they are occupied by micro-machines, self-directed, powerful, precise, accurate uh, biological machines, without which we would be dead. So what, what I'm going to show you now is, is an animation of what's going on inside a cell. It's a, it's a simplified... Um, animation but but it does show you something of the complexity of a cell So this is looking inside the cell. These things here um, are self-assembling kind of strands in, inside your cell which, which make themselves and then disassemble. As in here, this is, this is the self-assembly of these, what they're called microtubules, and this is them falling apart. And they do this in good time. These, these uh, molecular machines, they're called kinesins, and they, they carry these huge sacks of newly synthesized proteins to wherever they're needed in the cell. So these are things, these are things being, coming, being forced out of the nucleus of the cell. So we're now looking inside the blood vessel, uh, but we're back inside the cell now. These, this is an example of a, a little machine doing some business. It's, trans it's making protein from a gene. And here we have these kinesins again. This is not made up, this is, what's, this is something of what's actually happening inside the cell. This is the surface of our cells, um, and this is the extracellular uh, matrix, it's called. It's full of these, these little molecules which are communicating with each other. And these are amazing. I'll tell you what they are in a minute. <laughs> 
Okay, so so that that you know, you know those those things which I said to carnesians, which are pulling these huge sacks of proteins. There's uh, it's estimated that there's about a hundred thousand of those in every single cell of your body, and there's a hundred trillion cells in your body. So if you think you're lazy, you know, intrinsically you're not. Your bodies your bodies are extremely dynamic. Um, and wonderful processes. Those things which you saw kind of float, um, creeping along the, the inside of a cell wall, and then they disappear, those are called macrophages, right? And what they do is they're amazing. They, they, they creep along the, in, the lining of, of a blood vessel. And then when they detect that there's inflammation on cells outside the blood vessel, they change shape, and then they squeeze through the cells of the, of the blood vessel, and then they go out to the inflammation, and then they release um, various chemicals and things which can, which can fight uh, bacterial attack. They're absolutely amazing. Your bodies are actually enormously complex messengers. There's, you know, there's a lot of message information being, being uh, exchanged. So, do you want another animation? Okay, one more. So, um, you, know, you, know, you know DNA, right? So it's contained in the nucleus of the cell. But every time your cell divides, the new cell has to receive a copy of the DNA from the, cell, from the mother cell, right? Using computer animation based on the latest research, we are now able to see how DNA is actually copied in living cells. You are looking at an assembly line of amazing miniature biochemical machines that are pulling apart the DNA double helix and cranking out a copy of each strand. The DNA to be copied enters the production line from bottom left. The whirling blue molecular machine is called helicase. It spins the DNA as fast as a jet engine as it unwinds the double helix into two strands. One strand is copied continuously and can be seen spooling off to the right. Things are not so simple for the other strand because it must be copied backwards. It is drawn out repeatedly in loops and copied one section at a time. The end result is two new DNA molecules. There you go. So once again, that, that, a lot, there's many cells dividing your body and that's going on in, in, in your bodies right now. It's an amazingly intricate, complicated uh, reality which is, seems to contrast for me quite sharply to... Uh, to my little world sometimes. So th- th- those are views of the, of the, from of a scientific perspective of reality. You can see that the reality is one of change and complexity. I just now want to briefly look at um, the Buddhist re- reality. Now the main, and this will be familiar to a lot of you, but I, I want to say anyway, the main conceptual formula used by the Buddha to convey his vision of reality is known as the, the law of conditioned co-production. And it goes like this. This being, that becomes. 
from the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that does not become. From the ceasing of this, that ceases. That is the conceptual expression of the Buddha's vision of reality. Now these words, of course, deceptively easy to comprehend with the intellect, yet they contain a depth of meaning that few have attained to you know, the two, two and a half thousand years of Buddhism. Hui Nang, who was a, um, a very famous uh, pilgrim, said the profundity of Buddhism has nothing to do with the written word. So the Buddha's view of reality teaches that the entire universe is made up of processes, each of which arises in dependence upon a vast network of conditions, as we've already seen. When the conditions that support a particular process are no longer present, it ceases. So the Buddha saw everything, both in mankind and the world, as a complex of these interrelated processes. Life is a ceaseless swirl of motion, as we've seen. Nothing remains still for an instant, as we've seen. Either it's forming or it's decaying. What we call things are, in reality, as we've seen, processes. What we call cells are actually, fundamentally, processes. But the world appears to us as if it's consisted of solid, stable entities, virtually permanent and changing. Now, whilst this may be necessary uh, for everyday practical purposes, we proceed to turn practical convenience into rigid belief and behave as if we and it were fixed, everlasting entities. It's really interesting. I had a health scare recently and it really showed me how much I cling to this idea that I am fixed and I'm eternal, I am not going to die. Fundamental challenge to, to, to that view. Now, one implication of the Buddhist view of reality is, of course, that everything is impermanent, as we've kind of seen from, from the inside the cell. While, while science, in particular physics, physics, corroborates this view, the essential difference is that while science may merely observe and conclude the fact of impermanence, Buddhist practice is aimed at seeing this truth in the deepest seat of our consciousness. Because when we see the truth of impermanence, our lives will be transformed. They must be. Because it, and it's because, the Buddha said, because we, in the, in the deepest seat of our consciousness, do not see this truth, we keep bumping into reality. We want things to be permanent, particularly those things which we want and like. We want to be permanent, but we keep bumping into the, the reality of that's not, I'm sorry, but that's not true. I prefer, when, I, when I was um, about 14, I remember getting into a huge rage, um, which, which illustrates this, this complete inability to see that things are impermanent. You know, I, as I do now, I cycle, used to cycle around a lot, and, and my bike um, developed a puncture, and I just went into a massive rage, and I threw it around the road, I threw it in the bush, I threw it up in the air, I stamped on it, I kicked it, I bruised my toe, and... And it was because I could not accept that things are not as I want them, as I want them to be. Things do break down. And I think it's really... I came across an article written by a palliative care nurse who noted the most common regrets of people who were in the, in the process of dying. Number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. 
Number two, I wish I didn't work so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish that I'd let myself be happier. So these are, these are things which people wish they'd done and probably would have done if they'd seen that their lives were not as permanent as what they thought they were. But of course, the fact of impermanence, however, has, does have a flip side. And that in, if everything must change, it may change for the better. And that's, that's exactly what Buddhist practice is about. It's about using the, the principle of impermanence, the fact that things change, to, 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 do, to, to, to allow us to reach a, to allow us to reach a, a greater potential. So, the, I'm just going to conclude with um, a point that the, the Buddhist perspective of conditionality is not random. There are patterns. And the, but the Buddhist tradition divides conditionality into five categories. I'm just going to mention them very, very briefly because, they're, again, they're very, very, it's a very, very useful grouping to apply conditionality to our experience. The first category is the physical organic and it's the sum total of regularities found in physical inorganic matter and includes the irregularities found in chemistry and physics. And it includes the law of gravity, the four, uh, the four fundamental forces of nature and the laws of thermodynamics, etc. Which is a good job that they're, they're, they're conditioning our experience now, otherwise we'd be floating up in, the, in space. The second category is the physical organic and it's made up of all the conditioned relationships that pertain to the fundamental processes that support life. Respiration, without it we'd be dead. Photosynthesis, without it we'd be dead. Fertilisation, cell division, gene function, body repair, inflammation. And this is the subject of biology and chemistry. When life becomes complex enough, something very interesting and fascinating emerges. Instinct and basic consciousness. Here are found processes of perception, reflexes and stimulus-response reactions and instincts. Now, all of these three categories are operating in us right now. Our bodies, as I say, are not floating up in the air. The, your bodies are being quite quietly alive by respiration. There are a vast number of chemical reactions all interrelated going on in, inside your cells right now. The next category, the volitional, comes into play once intelligence becomes self-reflective, capable of forming an idea of self as a centre of action and experience. And it consists of all those regularities that are found in the relationship between the self-conscious agent, in other words, us, and the effects of our actions upon ourselves and other people, whether of body, speech and mind. And the fifth category, and that is an extremely important category, that is the, the category of ethics, that is the arena of ethics. Without, in Buddhism, without ethical practice, there is no wisdom. The fifth category of conditions that compromise, the fifth category of conditions, are those by which um, insight can arise, by which human beings can develop themselves to, to see reality a bit more clearly and it is these conditions which allow um, uh, spiritual development
I've run out of time. I was going to say something about the importance of ethics, but that maybe we can we can discuss that in the few minutes which we'll have at the end. So, I just want to conclude. I hope that I've managed to get you excited about reality. That's that's my be my main um, objective of this talk, to get you thinking about your own reality. What is your reality? And that, of course, your own reality is conditioned by the views which you hold. Find out what they are, because they, they govern your lives. They give a direction to it. Go away, and not literally, but go away, <laughs> and, and think about the world that you see around you and your experience within it. Do, do, do the assumptions which you make of the world, are they really true? Are you really an isolated, independent entity? Are you really number one? Actively seek out experiences of wonder and awe, which lift you, or you'll lift your consciousness out of the everyday humdrum uh, consciousness which we, we, we can experience a lot of the time. Go for a walk in the country as much as you can, for example, well, that's what I do, to, to look at some wonderful landscapes. But looking at reality takes courage. What you sometimes find in your reality is very uncomfortable. And you have to, well, do something about it if you want to, want to be happier. What are you going to do with the next second of the next cosmic year, according to Carl Sagan. You have intelligence and you have self-consciousness. What are you going to do in the next cosmic year, in Carl Sagan's scheme of things? And I just wanted to finish with a warning. The warning is is from the words of um, Isaac Newton. Newton transformed... The, our view of the cosmos. He revolutionised mathematics and optics and put in place a model of the universe that, that survived intact until more than 200 years later when Max Planck and Albert Einstein said, well, actually, no, we need to modify it. His greatness was recognised in his own lifetime. He was a god, if you like, of science. He was a genius. But towards the end of his life, he died at the age of 85, and new Newton emerged. He began to question whether he'd made the best use of his life, despite his greatness, whether he'd really, really looked at reality. He said, I do not know what I appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy, playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. So Newton is warning us. Keep your your eyes looking at the ocean of truth which is to be discovered in front of you. Otherwise, you might just have some regrets as Newton did. Thank you.